MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. That's the Russian national anthem, of course. Like Russia itself, it's been through some big changes since the Soviet Union imploded in 1990-1991. For a while, there was just something called the Patriotic Song, pretty lame compared to the rousing communist version. But in 2000, Vladimir Putin, seeking as always to restore the lost glories as they were of the good old days, restyled the old Soviet anthem with new lyrics. Lenin was out, in praise for the Russian eagle and the fatherland's tricolor symbol, which it said was leading Russia's peoples to victory. Well, Victory seems sure far off today. Putin's so-called special military operation has sputtered to a standstill in Ukraine. And then there's that ugly matter of what looks like a failed coup attempt by his erstwhile pal Evgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner group. Looks like heads are going to roll, starting with General Sergei Serovkin, a former top commander of Moscow's forces in Ukraine, who may have been in on the conspiracy. To discuss the intelligence angle on all this, I called on John Seifer, a former top Russia hand at the CIA. In 2014, Seifer retired from a 28-year career in the CIA's National Clandestine Service, which included assignments in Moscow and a stint running the CIA's Russia operations. Naturally, he's following events in Moscow very closely. John Seifer, welcome to Spy Talk. Now, try to imagine, if you can, if you were still working in Moscow as Evgeny Prigozhin's mutiny or coup attempt or whatever we're calling it erupted, or that you were running, as you once did, CIA operations against Russia when the revolt began, take us inside those offices and describe to us, if you can, the likely scenarios or mood or whatever, what would you and your colleagues be doing? <laughs> well, first of all, we'd probably be the only ones out on the street waiting to see where Prigozhin and where his troops came in, because I think, you know, we, and we'll probably talk about this during the podcast, is this was a real crisis for, for Vladimir Putin. You know, when push came to shove, this strong man, the man that, could, that controlled all the security services and all the people of loyalty, and he's the only one who can have stability for Russia... When push came to shove, I don't think he was confident that his forces, the security forces, would come out to protect him. He doesn't mm. know who's loyal and who's not loyal. And Prigozhin mm-hmm. has a very populist, strong message. And I think there's people in the, the right-wing nationalist side of Russia that actually support him more than they support Putin. So what we would be doing from the, you know, I, I was there in 1993 mm-hmm. when Russian tanks were making their way from the bases into the center of Moscow and eventually mm. shooting at the Russian parliament called the White House, which is right next to the U.S. embassy. Yeah. And I remember being on the street and on the bridges while these tanks were rumbling up with young conscripts that had probably had no clue what they were doing, probably never even been to Moscow before. 
and all of a sudden, you know, people and people were on the streets. And in you know, Russian history, it's it's a country that's probably almost uniquely been poorly run for centuries. People know to stay out of politics. They've been oppressed and repressed, and and Vladimir Putin does the same. If you try to get involved in politics, you're likely to end up in in jail at best. Mm-hmm. Um, so when push comes to shove, yeah, people don't go out and protest against the government because they know there's no use in it. But when the government needs them to come out on the street and rally to support the government, they don't do that either. They're going to just stay away. And so I guarantee that most people just went stayed inside and and was going to wait to see who won this. And and so those of us in the in the CIA station were probably be the only ones out on the street mm-hmm. looking to see what happens, so we could report back to to Langley and Washington to see what was going on. Describe what's going on. And of course, uh, people did uh, rally. I'm not sure that's the right word, but people did rally for Yeltsin uh, in the famous scene where he's up on a tank or a, a truck and rallying the crowds. Um, so you'd be out in the street almost like a wire service reporter. Um, and and would would you be filing instant reports like a wire service or television reporter? Yeah, it's interesting. So as you know, I mean, you worked in intelligence, you know, the the real important part of collecting intelligence, and I'm talking about mostly now about human intelligence, spy networks yeah. like that we worked on, is in preparation. It's having sources in places that we can provide insight to policymakers so they're prepared for crises, so they have you know contingencies in place and they understand the key players and that kind of stuff. We're not as necessarily as valuable once the crisis takes place. So yes, we will go out on the street. We will continue to report. This is what's happening. This is what people are saying. This is what it looks like. But in that sense, we're not that much different from journalists once a crisis starts happening because, you know, it, our 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 value add is giving insights in the lead up to that crisis, so we're better prepared. But when mm-hmm. a crisis happens, yeah, we we like good journalists try to get out on the street and. And figure out what's going on. But one of the things that's interesting here in modern day Putin's Russia is even when the Soviet Union was falling, or in 1993 when they attacked the parliament, there was a there was an army of foreign journalists working in Russia. And in 1993, there was quite an army of independent Russian journalists. In Putin's mm-hmm. Russia right now, there's very few, very few foreign journalists. And there's no independent Russian journalists because they get arrested or they fled the country. And the, the the Kremlin pushes out constant propaganda and disinformation and lies. And so, you know, understanding what's happening here, there's probably more of a more pressure on intelligence services to try to get it right. But they're also under greater pressure because a lot of them have been kicked out. There's few of them there and they're under constant surveillance mm-hmm. and, and pressure. Is it fair to say that uh, it would be easier, for lack of a better word, for CIA uh, personnel to operate in Moscow under such chaos? In other words, that the FSB would be more attuned to trying to find out what's going on inside their own <laughs> government and maybe surveillance would be lessened so that you could meet sources or more likely exchange information through dead drops or live drops. Um, would it be a little bit easier for you folks? Well, I think that's a, that's a, it's a, that's a possibility, but from my experience, no. Um, they have a massive, massive security apparatus. And more importantly is if we're going to meet a source in a place like Moscow, we go to such incredible lengths and such preparation, literally sometimes months and months, just to make a quick you know, 30-second meeting with someone in an alley somewhere. Because essentially at the end of the day, you have to be 100% sure 
that the other side doesn't see that meeting. Because if they see you talk to a Russian, they're going to go after that Russian. They're going to arrest him. They're going, to look, him. they're going to find out he's going to kill him. And so, you know, a crisis happens and we run out on the street. That's a, that's a time you want to be careful. You don't want to start running and just mm-hmm. looking for sources and trying to meet people because you want to, you want to be a hundred percent sure of your, of your status. And, and in a crisis situation like that, where there's a lot of people on the street and there's uh, you know, it's tough. Now, some of them, you know, nowadays there's there's different ways. There's technical collection, and there's uh, different ways that we might try to reach out to, to sources. And in, in a crisis, have a means where they may be able to reach out to us. But we would never really wing it in a place like that, per se. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the low level guys who do surveillance on you folks, uh, they're not going to be affected by stuff way up the food chain. They've got their jobs. They're going to go about it, trying to track uh, intelligence. Personnel. Yeah, because they worry about you know they're they're you know, low level bureaucrats and they get punished by their bosses. So they worry about a crisis happens like this weekend, crisis averted. You go back into the office on Monday and they're like, okay, what did the CIA guys do this weekend? And they, you can't, they can't be like, uh, uh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do that. They, they're going to get themselves punished yeah. uh-huh. or yelled at. And so, you know, they just go about their jobs, you know? Right. It's, so let's talk about other uh, all source intelligence, as it's called. So, uh, in a crisis mode like that, with uh, some momentous events unfolding, uh, looked like a coup, perhaps uh, in in uh, Russia. Uh, CIA benefits from all source intelligence, like uh, NSA uh, intercepts uh, uh, National Geospatial satellite coverage and so on. It all pours into one uh, sort of a crisis center in Langley. That's right. And you can imagine in a, in a situation like this, where all of a sudden you know, these, these Wagner mercenaries are working their way into Russia, a lot of people now are on the phone and contacting each other. And this is a place where technical collection and overhead satellites and NSA listening, this is where they're going to be at their best because they can pick up on these things uh, and they have linguists to, to quickly figure out what's happening here. And so that's the real strength of the American system. You know, the stuff I did, the clandestine service, you know, running spies, it's it's fun and it's interesting, and I'm proud of, of of sort of the work we did. And sometimes we have sources that you know change history, but it's just one small slice of a much bigger pie. And and the the, the value is putting it all together. And in a country like the United States that has business people and experts and academics and satellites and technical collection, military collectors, and and uh, the NSA and all these types of things put together. Pulling that together to all source analysts who can who who are experts on what they do to keep mm-hmm. to keep policymakers informed. That's sort of the strength of the system. The weakness of the system might be crappy politicians at the end of it, <laughs> not, not understanding <laughs> what to do with the intelligence. <laughs> I have a feeling I know the answer to my next question. I just thought off the top of my head is that you have any estimates on the quality of uh, uh, U.S. intelligence analysis on Russia? Do you think it's in good shape or they're lacking? That we need more recruits. What's what do you yeah, think? I'd be lying to tell you that, that I know now. I mean, I, I retired in 2014 and there's such a culture in the agency. You know, still, I, I worked almost 30 years there. My closest friends are still mm-hmm. either former or agency people, but we just don't talk about, you know, when, mm-hmm. you, when, you, when you leave a, a post overseas, you might have been had this incredible relationship with this source and, you know, it's a very important personal relationship and professional relationship. But when you leave, you're not informed anymore. You know, it's, you need to know and, and, and it moves on. It's, it's very professionalized in that sense. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, right. And most 
of our analysts are incredibly impressive. They're, they're taking all of this all source information on and, and they take their job incredibly seriously. So I don't have a sense of our Russia analysts are especially good or especially bad, bad right now, but uh, they're certainly in a very important place. And, and they, have a, they have a very important taskmaster because the director of the agency was the ambassador in Russia. In fact, he was the head of the political section when I worked in, in Moscow. So he's got a great bullshit detector. So he's some, <laughs> exactly. He, he, you know, this is a guy who uh, Bill Burns knows what he's doing, vastly experienced in Russian in Russian affairs, and so if he sees some analysis coming out of the Russia desk, let's call it, yeah, uh, in Langley, and and he'll call bullshit if he sees it that way. He'll no, say, "Oh, well, you guys right. don't know anything. You know, <laughs> you're not right. seeing the forest for the trees here." Um, so another uh, uh, tempting question is. is what should we be doing on an intelligence level in regard to Russia? There's some people say, or might be te- the agency might be tempted to get in, involved in psychological warfare uh, to try to manipulate, take advantage of the situation, try to manipulate uh, uh, tensions within the Russian government. Speaking of which, we now have these leaks flowing out saying that some Russian generals knew uh, about Prigozhin's revolt and may have kept quiet and not told Putin. Now, I'm just, I find it fascinating, these leaks all of a sudden. I mean, why, why, are we, why is anybody talking about that? Uh, and secondly, is this a, uh, are these orchestrated leaks just to sow dissension, a further dissension to, to prod them, have a little fun at the Russians' expense? <laughs> yeah, again, of course, the, the right answer is I don't know. But you know, this in terms of psyops, the kind of stuff you used to do in Vietnam and these kind of stuff. I think, in in a lot of ways, the intelligence community, at least CIA, has lost that muscle memory. It's something we did, you know, in the early years, and it's much harder now. You can't put like the Russians can spit disinformation into the system because they're just trying to create chaos and damage. If the U.S. tries to put out disinformation or you know subversion into the system, it just comes back right with social media. It comes right back into the U.S. food chain. It's against the law for us to put out false information that shows up in the U.S the U.S. news. But that said, true information can be used and can be just as powerful or more powerful than the, than the fake That's sort of right. stories that the Russians live off of. So we see this reporting that General Surovikin, now General Surovikin was in charge of the Russian military in Ukraine when they went in. He was the top general. He was eventually pushed aside so that they could put Shoigu and Gerasimov sort of in charge. We could talk about them if you want. But the reporting is saying that, that um, Surovikin knew about this plan. In mm-hmm. fact, maybe have been working with and supporting uh, Prigozhin, and therefore, you know, essentially conspiring against the president of his own country to support a, a mutiny or a coup or, or protest or whatever you want to call it. But you have to imagine that Vladimir Putin sees something like this, and he's got to realize, oh my gosh! I mean, can I trust anyone? But I just had this this crisis. And when I needed to call on my security services, you know, it wasn't clear who was loyal to me and who wasn't. I mean, Prigozhin has a really strong, you know, he's a thug, a murderer, a horrible human being, and not the smartest bulb. But he's he, but he is grasped under a very strong narrative, the hardcore nationalist narrative, which is these fat cats in the in the Kremlin. They have their kids living overseas or running around Monaco, and they have their yachts. And they're sending your children to be slaughtered in Ukraine. And it's all about the generals trying to make money off of Eastern Ukraine and mining and all these other kind of things. That's a really powerful narrative because it's largely true. Mm-hmm. And, and so 
there, Vladimir Putin has to worry that there's people inside his system that are maybe, maybe they buy that and maybe they, you know, Putin's been there a lot of years and maybe those people, you know, believe that Putin's lost it or he's not strong enough in Ukraine or what have you. And so when, when this crisis happened, you know, the people didn't rally to Vladimir Putin and he's not even, probably a lot of people didn't pick up the phone when he wanted them to go, uh, you know, defend Moscow. And then you add this potentially true information that senior people in the Ministry of Defense and in the in the military may have been working with Prigozhin. This is powerful stuff. And so mm-hmm. we don't have to make it up and pump it in. But that kind of information is the kind of thing that hopefully the Ukrainians and others can use to try to, to get information into those people that are sitting in cold trenches on the front lines, getting slaughtered and killed every day by, by Ukrainian artillery and, and gunfire. And, you know, so that maybe they realize, oh, my God, what am I fighting for? Like, mm-hmm. Moscow's a mess and, and, and it's not even clear, you know, who's in charge and all the generals are corrupt and it's time for me to leave. Mm-hmm. This is great stuff, John. Uh, we got to take a short break, but we'll be back in a second. As you say, it may well be true. And, and we've shown that we and the Ukrainians are pretty good at intercepting Russian communications. Uh, we've been pretty good at that for some time now. So we may well have been uh, closely monitoring uh, Russian communications and, and, and analysts you know, looking at what's going on may say, my God, you know, these generals know about this and they're not talking. They're talking to each other, but they're not talking to Putin. But in any event, some, some uh, <laughs> wisecracks have said that, that re- leaking this information is equivalent to the IC rolling a hand grenade into the post-coup <laughs> attempt recrimination party and running away laughing. And another wag commented that the U.S. seems to be trying to stir the pot with these leaks. So, Yeah, I don't know the intent, but it is odd that this it leaks so quickly. So you don't know if somebody in the White House said, hey, you know, let's, this is a useful, t- this is true information. We're not putting out false information, but now's a good time to put this into the ether. Or whether, you know, somebody shouldn't have been talking in the intelligence community and says, oh, we're so proud of what we're doing. Let's, let's get that out there somehow. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, hopefully, you know, a source is, is not in jeopardy because of that information. And hopefully it can be used by people like the Ukrainians and others to create more dissension inside the Kremlin. Sure. Now, <laughs> going further into inside baseball here, some of your former colleagues uh, suggested to me in a column that uh, uh, that uh, uh, the CIA is trying to cover, or U.S. intelligence trying to cover for the fact that they really didn't know exactly what was going on. And so they've increased these leaks to say, oh, no, 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 we know what was going on. <laughs> You know, I suggested an alternate headline for CNN's breaking news that U.S. intelligence knew about this event, saying maybe the headline should have been U.S. intelligence officials rushed to Capitol Hill to say, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what's going on, <laughs> but we think we know what's going on. That's not an unusual thing in Washington, as you know, is, is, is <laughs> institutions trying to sort of protect their rice bowl and suggest that. Oh, after the fact. Oh, no, no, no. We knew. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think there's potential sort of ass covering here that it's possible. But the thing with Prigozhin and what was going on is essentially that wasn't all secret. Prigozhin was speaking publicly for a long time, attacking Shoigu, attacking Gerasimov, upset that the Wagner group was you know, getting killed and losing people and that it was going to get pulled into the Ministry of Defense. And so... I'm sure the IC can say, yes, we were monitoring all this. We knew there was problems. Maybe we knew that Suravikin was helping. We knew that there was 
real potential here. But you know, did they know that on this date at this time what was going to happen? I doubt it. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's not unusual to to gild the lily after the fact sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm wary of asking you a, a question about how you interpret current events because they could change so radically yeah, within no, hours or tomorrow. <laughs> certainly by tomorrow, the next day when our podcast posts. So, but nevertheless, what do you what do you make of this? De- decampment to Belarus. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> I can't imagine Prigozhin being happy there. That's like being exiled to, uh, you know, Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, again, for someone like Vladimir Putin, his whole reason for being in power is he said, after the Soviet Union, you need me. You need a strong person for stability. You need me for control. I will take care of, ter- of, of, of traitors. I will keep the West from, you know, weakening us. I'm the strong man. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened with this crisis is he showed weakness and weakness is sort of the kryptonite to a dictator, especially one who, who there's no opposition and he claims mm-hmm. to be the, the, the person, uh, you know, sort of in control here. Mm-hmm. And so also there's a number of things that showed weakness here. You know, obviously letting Prigozhin go after he actually shot down Russian, you know, planes and helicopters and was threatening the Kremlin to let him go, and then astounding, and then to run to someone like Lukashenko and Kadyrov, the Chechen warlord, and to I mean, you have this massive government security apparatus that's that's overlapping and powerful, and really you had to run to Lukashenko. Putin treats Lukashenko like an idiot child most of the point, so not, so it has to be humiliating to him that Lukashenko saved the day for the Kremlin, and so mm-hmm. to get back to that thing of weakness is a problem. So. He's shown weakness and he's put himself in a really difficult position because in terms of, like I said, there's very few journalists there. These people are almost like mob bosses fighting over mob turf and stuff. And so there's always this inside baseball stuff that we don't truly understand of what's happening here. So there's going to be information that comes out over time about this deal. It's It's probably not totally clear to us what and why, but what's happened is Vladimir Putin has set himself up in a position where his choices going forward are really not good. For example, if he actually does allow Prigozhin to move to Belarus to avoid any kind of uh, more bloodshed, going to jail or anything like this, uh, he shows weakness. He sh- it looks like my God, you know, you're putting little kids in jail for you know saying something in in their classrooms that that you might think, and and you're going to let this guy go who killed Russians. Right, and and this is a guy who's who who doesn't hesitate to uh, send agents abroad to murder defectors. Well, let's go to that that one because so so a lot of people were joking. Oh well, you know he's going to get pushed out a window, and they're just going to kill Prigozhin. Well, you know that's not so easy, really. That creates a separate set of problems for for Putin. So if he lets him go, he shows weakness. But if he kills Prigozhin, the one thing he doesn't understand is how strong his has this populist message of of rich fat cat Kremlin people sending kids to slaughter, making its way through Russian society. So if he kills Prigozhin, there might be a lot of people who really bought into that, that view who are supportive of that and may rally to ultra nationalists. And so he doesn't have an easy choice here. Letting them go is a bad problem. Killing them is a bad problem. And it's the same if he fires Shoigu and Gerasimov, the people that that Prigozhin wants to be fired. He looks like he's just doing what Prigozhin wants him to do. He's the weak. He's the he's the weak one. Prigozhin's the strong one. But if he mm-hmm. doesn't fire them, their incompetence and their dysfunction and the fact that they they're doing a bad job, which is what Prigozhin's been pushing for a long time, which happens to be true, 
then 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 that happens. So so Putin's in a bad place right now in terms of for for a strong man to be in this kind of weak position is not a good look. So if you were in charge of Russian operations, <laughs> uh, would you say let's put the pedal to the metal here? Let's keep leaking out any reports. Uh, you put out a requirement, all hands on deck requirement, saying <laughs> we want reports on any dissension within the ranks and we want that out. Absolutely. And, you know, again, go, you got to you work with the Ukrainians very closely because they understand the Russians. They understand what they think. They understand how to get under their skin. Um, there's a lot of really talented Russians, you know, in cyber activity and things that have left the country who can provide, you know, insights or who can get into mm-hmm. people back home to see what's going on. There's probably a lot of Russian officials that have some information around the world that are that are shocked and embarrassed by what's happening in their country. Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to, you know, they've been sitting on the fence and some are going to say the winning side is the Western side, not the sure. Eastern side. And <laughs> they may start to, to work for us and stuff. So now is really a time, like you said, to, to put the metal to the metal, now pedal to the metal. But now, of course, intelligence operations, human intelligence operations often aren't, you know, fast things. Like you don't just just turn on a switch sure. and, and information comes out the other side. It's longer term if stuff, only. but hopefully we've been, we've been putting these longer term, uh, you know, infrastructure into place for a while here so that we can take advantage now that there's a crisis. That's a good reminder, John, that operations against the Russians going back to the Cold War days and the KGB operations against Russia don't take place just in Russia. Uh, if you're a case officer assigned to Buenos Aires, your main job during Cold War, and then you went to recruit a KGB agent or a Russian diplomat, or wh- wherever you were stationed, that was the main job, recruit uh, your opposite number. Uh, I su- suspect that, that where the CIA is, is uh, looking in his cupboards right now and saying, well, that guy that we were talking to in the Congo, he seemed to be a, you know, his loyalty seemed a little be a little weak. He seemed pretty, uh, you know, pretty negative about what was going on in Moscow. Let's take another run at him and say, recruit him because he's the son of a senior uh, general in Russia, let's say. So he might have some access and insight here, right? Yeah. So all hands are on deck here around the world to target Russian diplomats and intelligence officers for uh, or size them up for recruitment pitches. Absolutely, that's one of the reasons I joined. Inside the clandestine service, the CIA were sort of little tribes. You know, there's a Europe tribe and an Africa tribe and a South American mm-hmm. and an Asia tribe. I, I joined the sort of Soviet East European, which eventually became Central Eurasian group because we chased Russians all around the world. And I wanted, you know, not just to live in Europe or not just to live in Africa, but to to go after Russians everywhere. Because in back then, when I first started, it was Soviets. And that was, you know, of strategic importance to us. And so, you know, when I lived in Finland, or I lived in the Balkans, or I lived in Indonesia, or wherever, our job was to, to befriend and see if we could recruit Russian sources. And the other piece to add to that, Jeff, is that um, liaison services. So again, mm-hmm. for the clandestine service, the reporting that we put out, our, that we share with the with the White House and you know policymakers, a good portion of that comes from friendly liaison services that we work with. So in, and, all and around in fact, the world, and yeah. in fact, there's been criticism over the years that we depend too much on friendly intelligence services that we don't do enough. We don't get enough of our own independent reporting. A classic case was, well, many classic cases of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, we would uh, go to our friends in Polish intelligence, certainly the Ukrainians who we're working hand in glove with, uh, the Baltic states, any of these uh, Eastern European states that have have lines into Russia. 
Well, even farther afield, uh, you know, Australia, anywhere on the world, we, we, we spend time, we work with them, we try to figure out what's important to them, we share information that helps them, you know, and then in this kind of case, if I don't know, say you're in Bangladesh and you're, I'm making this up, and you're working with the service there on, on issues that are really important to them, you can say, hey, listen, you know, there's this Russian, you know, it's living in this this apartment. Can you have your your uh, you know national telephone service turn on his thing so we can listen to what's happening in his house? Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, we're working together. Let's do that. You know, this is an important thing. We'll help you on Russia if you help us on China or what have mm-hmm. you. And so there's this happens around the world. And it's a real strength of our system is that we're everywhere and we work with a lot of different places. Many that you wouldn't even realize, and they all may have a piece, or they may have a a real key piece of the puzzle that you'd never imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which kind of prompts me to bring up the case of Israel, which is a kind of friendly intelligence service. <laughs> but these days, you know, um, uh, Netanyahu's trying to straddle the fence on Russia. But you think the old, you know, the longtime pros in the in, in the Mossad and so on. They have long-time relationships with CIA officers and say, yeah, we'll help you out of this one. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because that is the advantage of living in these countries and sending professionals to work with the locals year after year after year. So, you know, when the, when the U.S. military all of a sudden is, is surged into, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan or something like this, they haven't been there developing these relationships and working on these things for you. They show up, they don't may not have the language, they're there to, you know, accomplish a mission, whatever it is. But we've spent years investing in these relationships. The people in, in Tel Aviv, for example, have been there every day for the last 60, 70 years, not nonstop working with their counterparts, talking to them, befriending them. And so sometimes, and there, you know, there's long examples of the British and others when where the politics at the top is not really good between the United States and and that country. But, you know, professionals working together, you know. You understand that you have to maintain that relationship. You can't all of a sudden turn it off and turn it on. And so I'm sure there's cooperation and things going on that maybe even if if Netanyahu is not sending military stuff to Russia or there's some bigger issues, I'm sure on a day-to-day level, there's still some cooperation that benefits the United States. Or as General Hayden once said to me, uh, and this is kind of a cliche, actually, he said, you know, administrations come and go. But we're here. <laughs> we stay. I guess that's as good a definition of the deep state as anything. <laughs> well, that's true. I was just reading a really good book about sort of the history of U.S.-British uh, intelligence relationships over time. But yeah, even when there was sort of friction between you know administrations, work continued together. Because you know, this stuff is long term. You don't just turn it on and turn it off. And mm-hmm. professionals understand that. Hey, uh, this is great, but let me ask you about a a small bore question here. There was a report uh, yesterday that U.S.-based Russian diplomats who were whisked home after the Wagner uh, uprising. What do you you make of that? A plane flew into D.C., uh, with some Russian, some new new blood, and took home a bunch of uh, Russians. What, what What do you make that? Yeah, I, th- when you see that kind of report, there's something else. <laughs> there's something else going on. I remember, for mm. example, when um, the the Russian illegals were arrested in 2010, mm-hmm. and uh, Medvedev was visiting the United States, and he went up to Canada, and then um, there was all this sort of back and forth, and and there was a lot of reporting on things happening, but they didn't understand, you know, that actually there was a, you know intelligence source that needed to be protected. And that's why things had to be weighed or why action took. And, and so if you don't have the whole picture, you, you, you can be skewed on what you think is happening. So something happened here. Either those Russians were 
pitched by the Americans and the Russians said, okay, you know, we can't trust them anymore, get them out of there. Or the Russians mm. saw them up doing something or in some way they were compromised. Like there's something that happened probably that, that, that precipitated this. And, and, you know, without the full picture, it's just so hard to say. There's a million different things that could have happened that led to something like that. Hmm. In other words, that Putin and his circle knew for some time that some of the loyalty of some of the people in the Russian embassy in Washington was suspect, and so they moved quickly to get them out of the U.S.? Is that what you're saying? Uh, it's, it's possible. It, or, you know, the, or, the, or the FBI did a, you know, when the crisis mm. began, went and pitched these people to spy for the Americans. And the Russians, rather than, you know, trying to slowly figure out, you know, hey, do I trust them? They, they just sent them home. I don't, you know, because mm. a lot of times, you know, if you're a, a, someone who is, is cynical and, and conspiratorial, if you're running the Russian intelligence office in Washington, if the FBI comes to one of your people and tries to get them to work for you, you might say to yourself, why did they choose Yevgeny? Is there something about Yevgeny that made them come to them? Is Yevgeny doing something illegal? Is Yevgeny do, has Yevgeny been talking against the the uh, regime? Is Yevgeny? So for me, if I'm the boss and I don't want to get in trouble, the FBI pitches Yevgeny, and I have to say, you know, frankly, it's safer for me. I don't trust Yevgeny. I'm sending him home. Mm-hmm. Well, there's going to be a great movie about this someday. <laughs> and <laughs> and I hope particular... we in Spycraft make it. Yeah, me too. Uh, uh, I want to get back to spycraft before we leave. Um, uh, but um, the, the FBI has been beaming social media messages at the Russian embassy for some time now. In fact, they made a big deal about it and publicized it, that, uh, that they're sending messages to the Russian embassy saying, hey, we're open 24-7. You know, while you're out of Taco Bell, you know, uh, <laughs> we'll send an FBI agent there uh, to, uh, to uh, enable your escape. So how do you think that's going? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I mean, I, I suppose that's all okay, and it, it makes for good sort of <laughs> in the news or something. But the Russians understand what the FBI does, and if you you don't work in the in the uh, Russian security services or frankly American services without understanding how the process works, and and if you want to go work for the other side, how you might do that, you don't need somebody pushing social media. If you're, you know, there's no Russian in the KGB office in Washington going, oh. Really? <laughs> the FBI might be interested in me? Oh, that's something. Maybe I'll go talk to them. So I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah, yeah no, I haven't thought. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a little too cute sometimes, you know, and maybe there's someone on the fringe who hadn't been thinking this kind of thing, and maybe mm. it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's it's part of the process. It's like, I'm sure, again, you worked in intelligence with the military, mm-hmm. and stuff. it's like dropping leaflets over whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like they drop, you know, 2,000 pounds of leaflets, you know, uh-huh. does, and they're mostly used as toilet paper. Does one... One of them gets somebody to think, maybe, but you know, mm, you do but, it, but is, do you count on it? No. Yeah, uh, I suspect that you might, you or one of your colleagues might have had uh, numerous encounters where a Russian, a KGB guy, you knew, he knew who you were, you knew who he was, and you'd have maybe a game of chess or have a beer someday, and you'd each be saying to each other, "Hey, why don't you come over to our side?" <laughs> well, exactly. And the one thing I said about Russians is, is it's a diff, it's a cons- more of a conspiratorial mindset. Um, you know, they've been under sort of oppression and repression for years and years. The security services are like a state within a state there. It's really important. They keep the leadership in power at all times. And Russians, like Americans, we don't think about intelligence on a day-to-day basis. It's really sort of a, it, it happens. We sort of know about it. 
in Russia, it's more in your your mindset and you understand that leadership is corrupt. And, and so you might, as you go through your career, think, you know, in what circumstance might I leave or flee or work with the Americans or the British or what have you? And so it's something Russians think about more than Americans do for the, for that that means. And so what you want to do is you want to be in a position when one of these people Maybe they've been trying to do their best. They've been trying to work in their system. And at some point they realize, oh my God, I've been, I've been doing everything I can to be a good Russian national, but the system is just so dirty, corrupt, and, and it's broken. Yeah, and the gossip might be that your mentor, your rabbi, your Sherpa back in Moscow is under scrutiny from Putin and may right. be murdered by him. And, uh, you know, that means that your future is in doubt. So you call up, your, you call up John Cipher. At CIA and say I want out. So that's why we want to we want to we want to be there for them. We want to maintain those relationships and main, keep them so that when the time comes, if they choose mm-hmm. to come to us, we are ready for them and can do so in a professional manner. Mm-hmm. What do you think? That you're going back to Spycraft Entertainment. You're a principal in this company that uh, helps develop uh, ideas uh, in an intelligence world for movies and TV shows and so on. What do you think the appetite is right now? Uh, are we going back into a Cold War entertainment milieu where there's a, an appetite for spy stories? I mean, there's some very, of course, there's the usual crap coming out, but there's very, very good stuff uh, on intelligence. Also, I'm thinking of the French series. The Bureau. Um, the Bureau. I'm thinking of Fauda series, the counterterrorism series out of Israel. Uh, Slow uh, Horses t- was good. Slow Horses. Um, a, a spy among friends. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. quite great Enjoyed about Kim Philby. Um, there is a series called uh, Tehran, which is also quite good on the tradecraft angle. Of course, then we go back to the Americans, uh, based on uh, the real story of the uh, Russian illegals. Right yeah. Um, is it? Does it hold up? There's a there's a Showtime thing on on Mugni, Imag Mugnia. There's a number. Um, yeah. So so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take. Real and authentic stories, obviously cleaned up so that they're not they're not have classified information. And then we work with the agency to make sure anything that we work on or stories that we come to Hollywood with are are clear mm-hmm. to make sure that they're they're there's no sensitivity or security problems there. Um, and and we're we're trying to yeah make movies, streaming shows, network shows. Right now, there's a uh, writer strike, which has sort of slowed things down a little bit. Sure. Uh, in terms of the the appetite. Essentially, yes, spy shows tend to do pretty well. So, but in in the mind of most Hollywood people, spy shows are essentially just these action shows, right? So they're jumping mm-hmm. on planes and shooting shooting each other up, and and so sometimes it, it takes quite a bit to to work with someone to explain why, you know, these the shows that mm-hmm. are a little are more cerebral that are about about sort of love and betrayal and and trust and you know you know real kind of stories can sell and you know you get the right kind of writer and the right kind of people you realize that you know there's there's no shortage of content of great stories out there that haven't been made yet into movies mm-hmm. and shows and so it's 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 an uphill battle it's an ongoing type of thing and uh we're having some success we have a number of things that are sort of moving forward but hollywood is even a more bizarre and slow-moving operation than my former profession was. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to wait for the ending of this particular chapter to see if there's a movie in the overthrow of Putin or <laughs> the dissolution of Russia. Of course, there has to be an American hero in there, and uh, I'm sure you'll come up with one. So. <laughs> Thanks, John Cipher, for being with us again on the Spy Talk uh, podcast. It's always great to talk. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. 
And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our entire podcast archive available at our home at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please also check out the Spy Talk column on Substack, where my colleagues and I offer fresh reporting and analysis from the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Until then, I'm Jeff Stein. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W-Media.